This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm Megan Kotzen. I'm a fourth-year medical student here at Rush, and I've been part of Alert and Oriented for about a year now. For those of you that have listened to our episodes before, you know typically we do these case-based discussions where we present different aliquots of information. We have students on that come and discuss things. We work through with a differential and ultimately kind of arrive at a diagnosis. So today is exciting because we're starting something a little bit different. So it'll be the first episode in this new series where we're going to be discussing certain topics that seem to come up pretty frequently in the clinical setting. We'll go through pathophysiology, differential, management, just even have a framework for how you approach some of these different topics. They're designed to be kind of bite-sized, digestible, just to give you, like I said, a framework for how you can think about things and just make you a little bit more comfortable if you do encounter any of them while you're in the clinic or in the hospital. So today's episode is going to be about hypercalcemia. It'll be case-based, but we're going to stop along the way and kind of break things down as we go. So we will get started. Our case today, we have a 55-year-old female. She's a new patient here establishing care. She hasn't seen a doctor in many years. She's had some fatigue, otherwise no specific concerns. So her past medical history is hypertension and type 2 diabetes. Medications are hydrochlorothiazide, amlodipine, and metformin. Past surgical history and family history are non-contributory. Social history, she smoked a pack a day for about 20 years and drank three to four glasses of wine per week. Physical exam is unremarkable. We get some basic labs. We have a CBC that's unremarkable. BMP shows a sodium of 138, a potassium of 4, creatinine of 1.2, BUN 28, glucose of 134, calcium 11.2, chloride 98, bicarb 22, albumin 2.4, AST and ALT are within normal limits, Elkfos is 135, and her T-billy is 1. So we have a slightly elevated creatinine. We don't know her baseline, so a little difficult to kind of distinguish the importance of that. And then a slightly elevated Elkfos with her other liver enzymes being within normal limits. And we have a calcium 11.2, which is elevated, normal 8.6 to about 10.3. And then an albumin that's low. Hers is 2.4 and normal being within 3.4 to 5.4. So I think it's kind of been drilled into all of our heads. When you see calcium, you always want to think about adjusting for that albumin. And for... But I think it's important that we think about exactly why we're adjusting for the albumin and what exactly that means. And so the formula that we've all been taught is for every one gram of albumin that's below four, we add about 0.8 to one to the calcium. And so I think that it's really important to understand that why we're doing that is because we use the total calcium as a way to estimate the ionized calcium. And so typically you think of ionized calcium as being about half of the total calcium. And the idea is that when you have low albumin, you're going to have more calcium that's free and ionized because it's not being bound to the albumin. So we'll adjust it to kind of increase the total calcium so that we can say the ionized calcium is higher. But just by having low albumin, you don't actually have a higher amount of total calcium. You theoretically have a higher amount of just the ionized calcium. And actually whether or not that plays out to be true in real life is kind of up for debate. There's some thought that when the calcium level is high or low, that affects how, like, the affinity of albumin for calcium. And so how reliable that formula actually is kind of being debated. But then the question becomes, okay, well, why can't we just measure the ionized calcium if that's what we're concerned about? And so you can check the ionized calcium. That's something that's done. But it is one of those tests that needs to be handled in a very specific way. So if you're in the hospital, you know, you have the labs are kind of drawn and run pretty quickly. Um, it can be arranged, but if you're in the outpatient setting, it gets a little bit more difficult because this lab needs to kind of be drawn, put on ice, and then run right away because the pH of the sample can affect the ionized calcium. And I think we've all seen practice questions about that before. You know, you have like 
this patient that's coming in that's hyperventilating, they're blowing off all the CO2, they now have this respiratory alkalosis. And as we know, your body kind of compensates by releasing some of the protons that are bound to albumin into the serum. And when it does that, it's gonna snatch out some of that calcium. And so your ionized calcium is gonna drop and you're gonna get these symptoms of hypocalcemia because it's the free ionized calcium that's now low. And so when you have these lab samples that are sitting out for a while, you actually kind of get the opposite effect where the pH in the sample will drop. And so in order to compensate for that, the albumin will bind up some of these extra protons in the serum. And when it does that, it's gonna release more calcium because there's only a certain amount of binding spots for hydrogen ions and for calcium. And so the ionized calcium is actually gonna look higher than it is. And that's just a result of the pH, not a result of you know, what the physiologic state of this individual's body is. So that is just kind of my little spiel on adjusting for albumin. It's something that's done really commonly, but just know that this is an estimation of what's going on and it's an estimation so that we can estimate the ionized calcium and what we're calculating, even though we're adjusting the total calcium, total serum albumin does not affect the total calcium. It's gonna affect the ionized calcium. So other things that we wanna think about is something called pseudo-hypercalcemia. So we wanna make sure that this is a true hypercalcemia. And there's only a couple of things that can really cause a pseudo-hypercalcemia. First is dehydration. So if you have a sample that's hemoconcentrate, the concentration of albumin is gonna look high compared to you know everything else in the serum. And so since most of the calcium is bound to albumin, you're gonna have a calcium that looks high. In this case, the free ionized calcium is gonna be normal and this should improve with fluids. And then one of the rare causes is multiple myeloma. So as you know, it can produce these monoclonal gamma globulin as part of the disease process. And every once in a while, it can produce negatively charged ones that will actually bind up some of the free calcium within the serum. And so assuming everything else in you know, the parathyroid hormone or the parathyroid gland and the hormone, everything else is functioning correctly. Your body's going to respond to that. It's going to see this kind of lower free ionized calcium. It'll increase PTH and you'll reach this new steady state where your serum ionized calcium is normal, but the total calcium is going to be high because now you have this other protein that's in the serum um, that's binding up some of the calcium. So those are the two pseudo-hypercalcemia causes that you always want to consider, um, dehydration obviously being the more common of the two. So let's assume that this is, you know, true hypercalcemia. The next question always is, is this PTH dependent or PTH independent? And just a quick review on kind of, you know, metabolism of calcium and what PTH exactly does. So in the bones, it's going to increase osteoclast reabsorption to free calcium. And this is from like long-standing hyperparathyroidism. And then in terms of the intestines, it's going to increase calcium absorption. And then when you get to the kidney, it's going to activate vitamin D, which increases or decreases calcium excretion and then increases phosphorus excretion. So your phosphorus ends up going down, but it's going to increase the, the serum calcium. So we always want to check a PTH. It's going to be the first thing that we're going to do to see if this is a PTH-mediated or a non-PTH-mediated process. But another thing that you can do, since PTH sometimes takes a while to come back, is you can check a FOSS. And like I just said, because with PTH-mediated, it's going to cause increased phosphorus excretion, you would expect the phosphorus to be low. One caveat to this is if you have parathyroid hormone-related protein, it does basically the exact same thing as PTH, so that'll also cause the FOSS to be low. So you can't necessarily distinguish between PTH and PTHRP just based on the FOSS, but you can distinguish between those two things and then some of the other causes of, or of hypercalcemia. And for patients who are on diuretics, I think that this would be probably less reliable, but still is a helpful test just to check. And then you're obviously still going to have to wait for the PTH to come back because that's going to be you know, the most reliable test. So in terms of PTH-mediated processes, 
most common is going to be primary hyperparathyroidism. And this can be either from a parathyroid adenoma, parathyroid hyperplasia, usually sporadic. But other things that you always want to think about is like MEN1 or 2A syndrome or things that we've learned about a while ago, but actually are semi-common causes of hyperparathyroidism. And then something else called familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia also can look the same with high calcium and higher levels of PTH or normal levels of PTH. But this is a much more rare phenomenon, and these patients should have like a long-standing history of hypercalcemia. If you don't have access to their labs from before, it can make it a little harder to determine whether or not this is long-standing or acute. But those are the other things that you always want to consider in patients that you're suspecting this is a PTH-mediated process. And also, it's important to note that just a high parathyroid hormone isn't what you're looking for. Also, it can just be normal because... You know, the normal physiology, if you have hypercalcemia, the body should respond by decreasing PTH. So a normal parathyroid hormone with hypercalcemia is still primary hyperparathyroidism or some other PTH-mediated process. Less likely causes, you can have like a parathyroid carcinoma, which is pretty rare, and then also tertiary hyperparathyroidism, which is something that you see in patients that have like longstanding kidney disease. Usually they're on dialysis and then they get a transplant. And so they have this kind of longstanding impetus for you to have increased PTH because they were hypocalcemic. And so that long, just elevated PTH causes the parathyroid gland to hypertrophy and become autonomous. And so even if you correct the underlying abnormalities, in this case, you have a renal patient that gets a transplant, you can still have the parathyroid hormone that is just kind of, you know, doing its own thing. And so you can get elevated parathyroid hormone levels even now that the kidney disease is resolved. And then just to kind of clarify, so if you have secondary hyperparathyroidism, which is another thing that will cause a high PTH, this wouldn't cause elevated calcium because secondary hyperparathyroidism is basically high parathyroid levels in response to low calcium. So physiologically, your body is doing all of the right things. So in this case, you wouldn't expect the calcium to be high. It would be either low or normal. So those are PTH-mediated processes. Next, we have the non-PTH-mediated processes. And so I think that a helpful way to think about all of this is just thinking about different ways that you can get elevated levels of calcium. So the first and most simple is that you're just ingesting too much calcium. And so calcium, it's handled by the kidneys. We can excrete a lot of it, assuming that our kidneys are functioning normally. But if you have any sort of insult to the kidneys, even something like dehydration and you drop your GFR, and you're someone that's taking all these calcium and vitamin D supplements, which is pretty common, or even like milk alkali syndrome, that can cause your calcium to be elevated. Something else is something that acts like PTH, but isn't PTH, which we talked a little bit about, but PTHRP. The PTH would be low in that case, but PTHRP would be elevated and it's going to look the same otherwise with the loaf. Another thing, so we know that bone is a big regulator of calcium hormones. So anything that's going to cause kind of increased bone breakdown and more calcium released into the bone. So something like prolonged immobilization can do it, especially in like young kind of healthy people that, you know, have a lot of muscle mass and then suffer some sort of like burn injury or trauma or something. And they're suddenly immobilized. You can see hypercalcemia there or like lytic bone disease. So multiple myeloma or even metastatic disease like lung cancer or breast cancer. And then the last big group is something that's causing vitamin D to be activated when it shouldn't. So these are going to be your granulomatous diseases. So sarcoid's a big one we think of. Others are TB and some of the endemic fungi endemic fungi can do it as well. So looking back at our data, we have a calcium level of 12. So there are kind of, you know, soft cutoffs that they use to say if this is like severe, mild, moderate hypercalcemia. Um, 12 is kind of the cutoff between like mild and moderate. So we can't say just based on that, whether this would be like mild or moderate. You also have to look at the symptoms. She has a little bit of fatigue, 
which again is like nonspecific, whether this is due to hypercalcemia or not, it's kind of hard to say. But the classic teaching is, is that when you have like a really elevated calcium, like usually like 15, 16 range, you do want to prioritize malignancy in that case because usually just primary hyperparathyroidism shouldn't give you a calcium that's that. That being said, there's always exceptions. If you have like primary hyperparathyroidism and then you have some sort of insult to your kidneys, that could cause it to be high. So just looking at the number shouldn't be used to like definitively tell you what the etiology of it is, but you can use it to kind of help you prioritize certain things. We have creatinine that's slightly elevated at 1.2. We don't know her baseline, which has a history of hypertension and diabetes. Both of these can damage the kidneys. So hard to say exactly. You know, you always think about multiple myeloma when you have renal dysfunction and then also high calcium. So something that we'll just kind of keep in the back of our minds, but we don't know if this is, you know, related to her chronic diseases. Is she a little dehydrated? Really hard to say as of now. We have this ALKFOS that's slightly elevated, 135, and then other liver enzymes, which are pretty much normal. So whenever you have an elevated ALKFOS, you always want to think about, is this liver or bone? We can always check a GGT just to see. But the fact that, you know, her T-bili is normal, all of her other liver enzymes look normal, and she has hypercalcemia, you should be thinking that this could be actually ALKFOS from the bone and not necessarily from the biliary tract. Then in terms of meds, so the big ones that we always think about that can be culprits for hypercalcemia are going to be lithium and hydrochlorothiazide. She is on hydrochlorothiazide for hypertension, but important to note that just hydrochlorothiazide hydrochlorothiazide in and of itself shouldn't really cause a severe hypercalcemia because assuming everything else is functioning correctly, it'll cause you to like retain some calcium, but your body's going to respond to that, you know, downregulating PTH. And so it could maybe be slightly elevated, but you shouldn't expect it to be significantly elevated. So hypercalcemia or hydrochlorothiazide could be contributing to it, but I would be a reluctant to, you know, blame all of this on hydrochlorothiazide, especially before you rule out some of the other um, reasons that she could have hypercalcemia. And then lastly, just looking at her social history. So she's a smoker. She has a pretty significant history of 20 pack years. So you want to consider malignancy for anyone that's coming in with hypercalcemia, but especially a patient that has like a pretty significant tobacco history. So next steps, we're going to get some more data. I think a good place to start is always recheck the calcium, especially if this was, you know, some dehydration and then, you know, the patient was out, she was doing some Heart exercise, not drinking a lot before she got her labs done. Repeat it. Sometimes it'll just correct on its own. And then I won't say you're out of the woods completely, but you can be more reassured and you should still follow up to see to make sure that, you know, next time you get labs that she isn't still or she isn't hypercalcemic again. So we'll recheck her labs. Her calcium still elevated at 11.6 and we got an ionized calcium, which was 5.8. Her false is low at 1.1. PTH is 8, normal being 10 to 55. Her 25 hydroxy vitamin D is normal. 125 hydroxy vitamin D is normal. And then PTHRP is elevated at 28, with normal being less than 1.1. So I think all these labs are a really good place to start when you're just trying to work up hypercalcemia initially. You want to think, you know, PTH mediated versus non PTH mediated is always going to be where you start. And I think just ordering all these labs from the start is more efficient sometimes than like ordering the PTH, waiting for it to come back and then ordering these other things. But I think that probably also, you know, institution dependent, who you're working with dependent. So if you get a PTH and the PTH is, you know, let's say 55, so that's like the upper limit of normal, that isn't reassuring. The PTH should be low in a patient that's hypercalcemic. So in our case, the PTH is appropriately suppressed, which is good. We can say with, you know, a lot of confidence that this is not a primary hyperparathyroidism or a PTH-mediated disease. So we'll look at the rest of the labs. We have her hydroxyvitamin D and 125 hydroxyvitamin D. Those are both normal, so this is unlikely to be like a hypervitaminosis D where she's taking in too much calcium or a granulomatous disease, in which case you have like the one alpha hydroxylase that's activating vitamin D and you'd expect the 125 dihydroxyvitamin D to be elevated. 
the FOSS is low and the PTHRP is high, which kind of fits with what we were talking about before. PTHRP acts just like PTH, so you would expect the FOSS to be low and the PTHRP is high. So here we have a parathyroid related protein mediated hypercalcemia. So then the next question becomes, okay, where is this coming from? And so giving her a history of tobacco use and the knowledge that we have that squamous cell lung cancer is associated with hypercalcemia and it does it through PTHRP, I think that a really reasonable place to start would be you know, looking at the lungs and seeing if there is some sort of malignancy there. I think a CT scan would probably be the most helpful here. And so we do get a CT scan of the chest. We see this three centimeter necrotic appearing mass in the right middle lobe with mediastinal lymphadenopathy and then a biopsy that confirms the diagnosis of small cell lung cancer. So in terms of treatment, obviously for something like small cell lung cancer and just malignancy in general, this is going to be managed by an oncologist, most likely involve chemotherapy. Um, but things that we could do now before that all starts is stopping the hydrochlorothiazide. So you always want to do things that are going to mitigate, you know, hypercalcemia or worsening the the condition, even if that's not addressing the underlying condition. So hydrochlorothiazide is going to raise her calcium, maybe not by a lot, but it is going to contribute to it. So you want to stop that. I think that's a lot simpler than if this patient had been on lithium and has like a longstanding history of bipolar disorder. Then it gets a little bit more complicated because you have to really like balance the pros and cons of stopping her on this medicine that is really beneficial for bipolar disorder versus something that is slightly increasing her calcium. For hydrochlorothiazide, we have a lot of good blood pressure medicines, so it's not as big of a decision, but you always want to be careful when you're, you know, making medication changes to patients. Treatment otherwise, so this is going to depend on the severity for mild. So usually they'll kind of base it off of the levels of either the ionized calcium or the total calcium, but ionized is going to be more helpful because like I said, that's what your body's seeing. That's what it's reacting to. So mild, we usually think of it being like 5.6 to 8 milligrams per deciliter. Moderate is 8 to 10 and severe is 10 to 12. So if you have a patient that's coming in, they have mild to moderate levels, which would be our patient. And then they're either asymptomatic or just mildly symptomatic, which I think that she also fits into. Like I said, we're going to avoid anything that's any meds that can increase her calcium. You want to avoid any sort of like prolonged immobilization that can cause bone break that can increase the calcium. You want to make sure you avoid anything that will dehydrate the patient. So really encourage them to be taking in like good oral fluids. You want to avoid any calcium or vitamin D supplement. And for those patients, they can be managed outpatient. You should still be like monitoring them regularly and checking their calcium just to make sure that things are improving and not getting worse. But for slightly elevated calcium like that, you can for the most part, manage it outpatient. For severe hypercalcemia, so we always start with intravenous fluids. In terms of which one, normal saline has kind of been shown to be what we use more frequently just because LR does have some calcium in it. It's a pretty small amount considering you know, the fact that you're like distributing it all over the body, but still there's calcium in it. Normal saline does not have calcium in it. So if you have to choose between the two, I think it makes sense to choose the one that doesn't have calcium in it. And then in terms of how much fluids to give, so if these patients have good renal and kidney function or renal and cardiac function, you can give them a pretty good amount of fluids. You know, that's going to help dilute everything. They're going to pee out the calcium, which is our body's way of excreting it. But you run into trouble in these patients that have like some pretty severe kidney disease or they have a history of congestive heart failure and you're worried about fluid overloading them. So I'd be looking in the chart, seeing if there's any, you know, previous echoes that you've seen for this patient. Also, like kind of going back and doing a pretty careful exam, making sure you don't see JVD, peripheral edema, crackles, anything to suggest that this patient might be having like a CHF exacerbation. If you're not sure, you can always check an echo. You can check a BNP. But for these patients, if they do have a history of CHF, which as we know is a very common thing that we see in the hospital, there's actually data showing that using loop diuretics in addition to fluids can be helpful. But otherwise, they wouldn't really recommend using loop diuretics because this can dehydrate patients. And so if you're dehydrating them, you're going to decrease their GFR. And anything that decreases their GFR can ultimately increase the serum calcium. So 
It's a very delicate balance. Going along with that, any like NSAIDs or anything that's going to decrease the GFR as well is going to be avoided for these patients. Other management, so calcitonin is something that you're going to use for severe hypercalcemia. There is tachyphylaxis with this. You can only really use it for a maximum of 48 hours, but it does have a pretty quick onset. So it should lower the serum concentration by like one to two milligrams per deciliter. And at the same time, when you're starting calcitonin, you also want to start bisphosphonates. These can be used long-term, but they do take a couple of days to reach their peak effect. So that's why you want to start them at the same time, because that way, by the time you're kind of done using the calcitonin, hopefully the bisphosphonates would have kicked in. In terms of which bisphosphonates to use, IV zoledronic acid has been shown to be the most effective. Um, the only thing to consider is these are renally cleared. So depending on the renal function, they'd have to be renally dosed. And if their kidney function is bad enough and they can't tolerate it, you can think of something like denosumab, which can be used in patients that either have like a bisphosphonate allergy or renal function that's so severe that they can't handle bisphosphonates. And then dialysis is, you know, always kind of like a last resort for patients that have severe refractory hypercalcemia, as long as they're hemodynamically stable. And then in terms of long-term management, so this is going to depend, you know, the etiology of the hypercalcemia. For hyperparathyroidism, which is usually kind of the most common, so you want to see, you know, is this parathyroid hyperplasia? Is there an adenoma? Are these patients surgical candidates? Do they need to be managed medically? And so that's kind of out of the scope of exactly what we're discussing today, but those are all things to consider when you're thinking about whether this patient should be managed surgically or medically. If they are being managed medically, phosphonate therapy is something that can be used long-term. If this is like a granulomatous disease, so sarcoid's the big one we think of. Steroids are going to be the mainstay of treatment. If it's TB or a fungus, you're going to treat the underlying condition there. So whatever it is, you're going to you know, consult ID or manage it, you know, that way. If this is hypervitaminosis D, so a patient's just taking in, you know, too much calcium, too much vitamin D, whatever it is that they're ingesting, you want to stop the ingestion. And then if this is like malignancy related, so for, for our patient, you know, small cell lung cancer causing like PTHRP, you're going to want to treat the small cell lung cancer. If this is, you'll often see it in like advanced malignancy too. So it's like breast cancer that's metastasized, is now in the bones. Um, these patients are in a lot of pain and their disease is kind of like, you know, advanced, advanced malignancy. So you can use bisphosphonate therapy. That's obviously not going to treat their underlying malignancy, but symptomatically that's going to help management wise. And then if you do make a diagnosis of familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, which sounds like it would be an awesome diagnosis to make, for the most part, these patients aren't treated with anything. The hypercalcemia is mild. And so as long as they're not symptomatic, you can just kind of let them ride with their mild hypercalcemia. So just a couple clinical pearls before we wrap up here. So when you see a patient with hypercalcemia, first thing you always want to think about is this PTH dependent or in, and always in the back of your head, make sure that you're not having a case here of like a pseudo hyperkalcemia, so dehydration or one of the rare types of multiple myeloma. There can be multiple things going on. So you can have a patient that has kind of, you know, early stages of primary hyperparathyroidism, and then you start them on like hydrochlorothiazide or lithium, and that can kind of unmask something that maybe wasn't really showing itself before. So you still want to consider that in a patient that's on hydrochlorothiazide, but their PTH comes back either normal or elevated. It can be both. So check a FOSS. It'll come back faster than the PTH, and it's not going to be able to tell you PTH versus PTHRP, but it can help you to distinguish between some of the other etiologies of it. But like I said, you still do want to wait for the PTH to be able to determine exactly what's going on. Hypercalcemia will cause vasoconstriction, especially involving the kidneys, so that'll further decrease the GFR. 
That's why you want to stay away from NSAIDs or anything else that can further decrease renal function. Because if you're not filtering through the kidneys, you're just going to be accumulating more calcium and that's going to make the hypercalcemia worse. The normal PTH is not normal in hypercalcemia. So always remember that, especially like upper limits of normal, you really want to be thinking that this still could be like a PTH mediated, most likely primary hyperparathyroidism. Typically, malignancy will cause a hypercalcemia that is, you know, more significant. But other things to think about is someone that has like a primary hyperparathyroidism that all of a sudden has an insult to their kidney and that can cause it to jump acutely. And you also want to think of like the timing of all of this. So in patients that have, you know, like a slow indolent hypercalcemia where it's been months to years of it kind of slowly increasing, they're less likely to be symptomatic versus patients that have this abrupt acute increase in their calcium. And I think that that's kind of, you know, can be a lot of the electrolyte abnormalities will be the same. Like we'll see it with sodium patients that are, you know, chronically hyponatremic are less likely to be symptomatic than someone that has like an acute change. And then lastly, treatment. So it's going to depend on the level of the calcium and the presence of symptoms. So we always want to think about like the bones, groans, stones, psychiatric overtones. So you've got the bone pain, you can get the constipation, you can get kidney stones, and then altered mental status can be, you know, anything from just like mild fatigue to like full-blown delirium. So there is a spectrum that kind of varies based on the hypercalcemia. So fluids, calcitonin, and bisphosphonates are going to be your mainstay of therapy. And then also making sure that, you know, you understand the underlying pathology and you want to treat that as well. And make sure that if you are giving fluids, you take the time to make sure that this isn't a patient that has CHF or some sort of like severe renal dysfunction where you have to you know, be really careful of the amount of fluids that you're giving them. So thank you guys all for listening. That's just a brief overview on hypercalcemia. Um, this topic is very nuanced and there's obviously a lot more that goes into it than what I covered here. So hopefully this gave you a good framework of just how to think about it. And moving forward, you'll feel a little bit more comfortable when it comes to managing these patients. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. We'll see you next time.